0: mm <laughs> Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. Their newly released book, MIPS Manual 2019, is available on Amazon now. This book is great for practice administrators and clinicians who need to keep up with the changing healthcare laws. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give
1: to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts.
0: Emily Peters, author of Procedure, and founder and brand strategist, is sharing with us today about her personal maternal health crisis and how it led her to write the book Procedure stories of women remaking medicine. Join us as she gives us all the details and tells us what we may expect in a volume two delivery of her next book.
2: Great. Well, thank you guys for having me on your podcast. I'm so honored. Uh, My name is Emily Peters and I run a brand strategy studio for healthcare called Uncommon Bold here in San Francisco. Um, And I also run a publishing company for healthcare books called Procedure that we just started last year um that's really exciting and yeah i love how you described you know kind of that ongoing process of finding more and more pieces of the puzzle in healthcare i think one thing i really love about working in healthcare is that you're never ever ever done learning about how healthcare works in this country because it's so complicated and you know anytime you know, I think I probably learn a new acronym every day. right? And so it's really a great sector to work in because that pretense that you have to know everything and that you're this expert, it kind of falls away in healthcare because it's just, there's, there's no way, like you, there's nobody who understands everything about how our healthcare system works. Um, and I love that every day is a learning process and every day is a balance of what I call like love and outrage, right? So it's, you love, there's so much to love in healthcare, the stories of innovation and new life-saving treatments and technologies and the stories of providers. And I mean, there's just, there's a lot to love about our sector. Um, and at the same time, there's so much outrage and anger at why is it this way? Like how did we let it get this way? Why is it so hurtful so often to so many providers and so many patients and so many people working in the sector? Um, And how do we we start fixing it and, and not get overwhelmed in that process of trying to fix something that's so monumentally huge and monumentally broken?
3: I love that. So, I love the idea of love and outrage just because just those two pieces of you like you feel it. It's on both sides of the coin or whatever extremes. People are either really, really happy with what's possible and but then also of course outraged over well many things as we've all experienced a lot of times. Bills.
2: You know, in my own experience as a patient really sort of radicalized me, right? I think a lot of us who work in healthcare for a long time you can get kind of immune to the the real fundamentals of the life and death side of healthcare right we're not you know healthcare providers ourselves so we're not there on the front lines with the physicians you know in the ICU um, or with the nurses you know in a pediatrician's office and so you know healthcare it loves to take something that's really like compelling and dramatic and visceral and human and put an acronym on it and make it really dull right so like I think about the social determinants of health is a really great example of that you know this concept that American society is structured in such a way that we actually live less long you know like we have shorter lives than people who live in Canada you know or people who live in other countries because of you know, the, the way that our society is set up, like that's such a visceral and painful and emotional topic. And we just call it SDH and slap an acronym on it and like, you know, put it in some like 900 page policy report. And, uh, one of my real, uh, motivators in healthcare is to get back to speaking clearly and emotionally and really beautifully about, how healthcare works and what it's really like for patients and for providers. And, you know, even when we're talking about something like HL seven, right. Or MIPS and like these really dry acronyms that always ties back to a really emotional and compelling story of what we're trying to do and how we're trying to help people and and to make progress towards something better. And so, yeah, my own story, you know, two years ago, almost three years ago now, um, I was in labor with my daughter and about, uh, you know, five minutes after she was born, I bled to death, essentially. Um, I had... Uh, a suspected amniotic fluid embolism, which just saying those words uh, makes any healthcare professional turn like sort of grayish white colored. It's one of the more deadly, least treatable maternal complications you can have. Um, And I was in DIC where your blood can no longer clot within a few minutes. Um, I received 32 blood transfusions in the hospital. I was passed out of course, for all of this. And I woke up in the ICU a few days later you know, and immediately the way my brain works, I started to immediately think about the story and think about what had happened and how to put it in context of what I knew about healthcare and what I knew, you know, I was like taking notes (laughs) when I was still on like a huge amount of fentanyl um, about how I was going to tell the story and how I was going to use it to change what I was trying to do in healthcare. And I think that perspective as a patient as a provider like it's so valuable you know we need those kinds of voices and those people to tell those really human and compelling and emotional stories because what we do it just matters so much
3: you're absolutely right and when you talk about like the acronyms and how people get lost underneath everything is somebody's you know real life and what something that they have experienced I was really fortunate to get to Read your book and have it in my hands and get to read about like real life people and women in healthcare. Can you kind of speak to to that? How did how did the book get started and what was that experience like? Just meeting these amazing women who had contributed to healthcare and in different ways.
2: Right. Thank you. I'm so glad that you enjoyed the book. It's been a really amazing project for me. You know, I I started to recover after being a patient and being so sick, and thankfully I'm I'm fine now, and my daughter is as well. But, you know, as part of that recovery process, I started to think, like, what can I do to make a bigger change? Like, how can I stare down this, you know, $19 trillion beast of our healthcare system and make some change in it? You know, I had already been doing good work as a communications person and marketing person, but I wanted to do more. Um, And then I think with the election in 2016, a lot of women especially started to feel like I can't wait for somebody else to come help. Like we need to do it. Like we need to make changes happen. Like we can't wait for things to work themselves out. Like we need to get going. Right. And I thought a long time about what could I actually do? I'm, you know, I'm not going to go back to medical school. Like I'm not a researcher. Like what can I use that I'm good at to do something that's going to be impactful. And that came down to this idea of writing a book um, and really elevating the voices of other women who have been trying to create change in the sector and who have been creating really impressive, amazing change in healthcare. And I decided to do that in July last year. So this is actually the anniversary of me deciding to do this project Um, and I wrote and took photos and worked with publishers and everything all within six months. And we had our book launch party in July at the JP Morgan healthcare conference in San Francisco, which is pretty much the opposite, right. Of what we're trying to do in healthcare, JP Morgan's all suits and acronyms and money. Um, And, you know, here we are trying to tell these stories of of women and passion and diversity and bold voices. And our book launch party had a confetti can and it had kids at it. And it was, it was totally different. And I love that. Um, so the book tells the stories of ten women, um, both physicians, researchers, health policy leaders, startup founders, um, who are working to remake medicine. And it starts with a couple women's stories. You know, people who came up in medical school when there were still quotas, saying that medical schools would only accept five or ten percent women into their, you know, faculty um, or into their med school curriculum, and. Uh, you know, those women managed to make so much change in their careers, all the way through to people who are now you know, in their 20s, who are starting companies and trying to work on mental health. And one of my biggest goals with the book is to really show women that there's so many different ways to be a leader, it doesn't have to look like a particular thing. You know, when we think about a leader, traditionally, you know, you sort of see a, maybe a man in a suit, you know, standing at a podium at an uh, investor conference, right? Um, but we know real power and real leadership and real change often doesn't look anything like that. It often looks like a PTA meeting or a book club or, you know, somebody who is that person at the office who everyone trusts and and leans on Um, and to show women that, you know, we need you. (laughs) We especially need you to stand up and to be a voice for change and to raise your hand and to take some kind of action in a way that feels authentic and good to you.
1: You know, I think one of the most um, one of my favorite stories in the book is uh, Esther Chu. She's just so outspoken, but well spoken, and very pointed in what she has to say as a result of some of her experiences. You know, what has been your experience working as a woman in health IT? You referenced J.P. Morgan Chase and how kind of the the timing and just the position to what that traditionally represents in healthcare and health IT, um, how it felt or was positioned, I guess, at the time. You know, what is it like for you working in this spot place in a traditionally male-dominated field?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, J.P. Morgan especially, it was actually quoted in a publication about J.P. Morgan saying that it fills me with white hot rage, which it does. Like, I always go and I'm like, this year's going to be good. This year's going to be different. And then, you know, you're just always like the only woman in the room or like one of two women in a room. And it's the sameness. I mean, it's not even different types of men, right? It's like the same suit and the same shoes and the same bankers and the same people just trying to make as much money as possible in healthcare. And it's so enraging to me. Um, And I've had a lot of experiences like that. I mean, I've had, it's that same love and outreach again, right? There's been a lot of experiences in my healthcare technology career that have been amazing. Like I loved, loved, loved like working with these teams and doing incredible things and collaborating and, you know, what we were able to create together. And then there's also really terrible moments in healthcare that I'm like, can't even believe. I mean, I started going to hymns more than 10 years ago. The big health IT conference, um, usually now in Florida or in Vegas. And um, I remember one of those early years, I was a SVP at this point, I think, or VP, at least of a tech company. And I was in the booth at HIMSS with another woman who was also VP. And everyone else had gone off to lunch. And these older gentlemen in suits came up and they looked at us and they sort of looked around the booth and they said, did you guys bring any um, executives to the conference or is it just you guys? <laughs> and that story, I just, you know, so frustrating and so annoying and some of the things that used to go on at hymns. I mean, I think the the part that goes back to the love side versus the outrage side is I do think it is changing fairly quick. I mean, HIMSS is a very different conference now than it was even just a couple of years ago. And, you know, there's still a huge amount of progress that needs to be made, but things are, I think, changing and, and starting to change even faster.
3: I hope so. You know, I have a similar experience, but not at HIMSS, but even just at an, at an office that I used to work where the my first week I was going in as VP of operations and the gentleman was telling me where I could make the coffee mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, are you, Oh, that's quite an expectation that, I mean, I'm, I love coffee as much as the rest of them, but I just yeah. never thought that it was actually part of my job description. Right. Um, <laughs> when I got there, but I mean, a
2: lot of it's not even mean intention. It's just what happens when you get, you know, 50,000 people who all share a perspective in a room, you know, that sameness is really Um, hard to overcome. And it's so damaging. I mean, there's studies after studies after studies that companies do better um, and medical teams do better when there's diversity of all different kinds on those teams. And healthcare is such an important sector where we serve every single person in the country. We need to have a healthcare system that looks like every person in the country.
1: I think that's so true. And, you know, being in the health IT space and doing this podcast, there are no shortage of amazing women or people of color or anyone really that that sameness should exist that's out there that you described, um, you know, in writing procedure, I guess more away from the health IT side, you know, if you focused in on medicine and some of the folks you had an opportunity to talk with, what do you think the single biggest challenge in medicine is uh, for women there?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's systemic in that medicine is pretty toxic to most people the way it is today and women i think smartly just maybe don't put up with it as much as men do um you know and so we think about the way that residency training And fellowship training, you know, you're limited to working just 80 hours a week, right? And there's all these studies about the percentage of doctors who fall asleep at the wheel on the way home from a residency shift, right? That's not healthy for anybody, right? That's not healthy for women. That's not healthy for men. I think women, you know, because we, by society, we have these other obligations. You know, we have family, we have kids, we have other things that are in our lives. You know, we're less able to just throw all that under the bus and say, okay, great. I'm going to work, you know, a hundred hours a week or 80 hours a week. Um, I think that's a good thing. And I think, you know, there's a line in the book that I love where Dr. Adish says, you know, don't change to fit medicine. You have to let it change to fit you because you're so much healthier and more whole than medicine is like, we all need to be pulling our profession to be more like us and what we want and our list of demands because it's better for everybody. Men don't want to be working 80 hours or 100 hours a week either, right? Like, that's not good for them either. Like, they should be with their families and their kids and having a balanced life. And so I think the things in medicine that are still very difficult for women, um, you know, are often, like, very difficult for everybody. And it's just, it's maybe women who are going to help to create a better system
3: going forward. So, procedure is called, it says it's volume one. Mm-hmm. Do you have a volume two? Is it on the way?
2: We are. Prepared, I so, thought. Yeah, procedure has evolved in that now. Um, so, procedure volume one, Women make, Remaking Medicine, was such a huge success and it's such a fun project that we were going to keep going. Um, so, we've also, you know, in addition to starting to think about volume two, which is going to be about patients remaking medicine. So, we'll have both women and men's voices, although I haven't found very many men yet, but um, I hope I'll find some amazing people soon. But talking about people who use their own patient experience to create change in healthcare. So, we'll be a lot of still physicians, technologists, um, but also just people who live interesting lives um, and have been through a lot. I have a friend here in San who's a heart lung transplant survivor and just the way that she lives her life after that is so inspiring. Um, and she, you know she's not necessarily going up to Capitol Hill and advocating for things, but I think there's a lot that we can learn from her story of the way that she leads just by living her life the way that she does as a photographer now. Um, and so the next book will probably have a lot more than just 10 profiles. I think we're aiming for maybe 30 or 40 altogether, um, ramping up and, and continuing to tell even more stories and hoping to radicalize even more people to join us um, trying to fix some of the bigger issues in our healthcare system, um, and then we're also doing some work with the publishing company now to try to bring up um, other voices of uh, you know bold, bright change in healthcare. And we have some really exciting projects that are starting to brew, um, and how we can use what we've learned from doing our own book to help to amplify more books. You know, one of the Things that I was thinking about before we prepared for this call is, you know, what are the books that have helped inspire me? Because that's always the question that comes up when we talk about being an author and being a book publicist. And um you I there aren't that many books actually that I read, especially early in my career, that um felt like super um personal and very motivating for me. I actually looked more for things like TV shows. And, um, you know, the Beyonce homecoming documentary on Netflix that came out earlier this year, which I'm obsessed with, is basically like my version of, you know, a Jack Welsh book about business. Like I could watch Beyonce work all day long. Um, and same thing with shows like Mary Tyler Moore and Death Set and 30 Rock and Parks and Recreation and all these shows that show women at work. And so I think with the book projects, what I'm trying to really do is create those kinds of books. That are the things that I wish I could have read, you know, 20 years ago when I started out in this career that are fun and funny and interesting and beautiful and, you know, don't look like a medical, you know, textbook or some, you know, cheesy policy book, right? That are going to be more interesting. And that's maybe my way of pulling medicine towards me. So I'm going to ask for a second question. And that is,
1: and you have so much to draw on. If you could change one thing about
2: healthcare or health IT, what would it be? It's such a huge question because I feel like every five minutes I come up with some new part of healthcare that I, I'm like, oh, we have to fix this first. And then you start to unwind it and you're like, well, if we fix that, what we really need to fix first is this. And then, you know, well, if we get universal coverage for people, what's it going to do to the provide like this? Like, it's so complicated, a web. To start to think about how you fix it, but there is one area that I think, for me, is super super personal: is the maternal health crisis. And I think, you know, we have the worst maternal um, outcomes. You know, the the rate of maternal death and women dying in childbirth in the United States is really really terrible. We're we're last on the list of developed countries. We're about the same in terms of safety as delivering a baby in Haiti. And I think that is so symptomatic of the way that healthcare is so broken in so many different ways right when we talk about things like access to care and prevention and you know medical errors and things like being able to see um, you know have a nurse come to your house instead of having you drag yourself and your newborn baby in for a pediatrician's appointment or in for a follow up OBGYN visit um, you know and family coordination trauma mental health like everything is involved in that maternal health crisis and i think if we can focus our attention and try to really fix that, we will, um, even if inadvertently, help solve a lot of the other problems that are plaguing healthcare at the same time, because you know, it doesn't make any sense to be a country that spends the most in the world on healthcare by far, and to you know, be the same level of safety for women in one of the most common and everyday medical procedures of having a baby, like, that needs to be safe. Like, we should be leading the world. I think
1: that's so well said. I have to ask you a question. We usually don't ask people how they make the wish happen. But Mm -hmm. how do you think we begin to compel some folks to action? Because I don't think there's anyone out there that would argue with anything you said. And I love the thoughtfulness behind end-to-end, how, you know, success in that, in solving that problem and making that wish come true would have impact downstream or in other areas of healthcare. Um, you know, is it is it a matter of turning apathy into action for all people? Is it an access issue? Or maybe what do you just think is the first step?
2: I think what I'm excited about is I think that first step has already started to happen. Um, there's been some amazing reporting in the last two years from NPR and ProPublica that's really shined the light on this crisis in the way that, you know, a lot of people were not paying attention to the fact that mothers were dying all across the country or having near misses like I was. Um, that has really allowed it to be a place where now I think women are sharing their stories, you know, um, and talking about women's health and infertility and maternal health and the complications. I think the stigma of, um, you know, having a maternal complication or having something bad happen to you, um, related to women's health, like that's gone away. Like everyone is sharing their stories now and that's a huge step forward. Um, I do think that there's a lot more change that can happen from it. And it's actually a place where um, there's been some early successes. So the reason that I survived what I survived was because I'm here in California. And because California is invested in this big maternal health quality initiative a few years ago, where they created set hospital policy and triage protocols and um, hemorrhage protocols so that I was in a hospital in California that had adhered to those. They knew exactly what to do as soon as they saw what was happening to me. And they had the protocols. They had a crash cart for maternal hemorrhage in the hallway. They had, you know, the blood bank on, on dial. They had the right tools and techniques to save my life, that doesn't exist in a lot of states still. Um, and that initiative, that maternal health quality program, 100% directly saved my life. And I think there's a lot of push now to to push for that across the country to make that a more standard policy, which will be a big step forward. But still, you know, getting back to that social determinants of health idea, again, you know, there's so many things that feed into, um, what's happening to women in this country. And there's a lot of it. I think women need to start fighting back and saying like, we deserve better. Like, don't make me come into the doctor's office. Like, send me a nurse. Like, uh, don't, you know, don't make me pay. I, my labor was $500,000, right? Everything was $550,000. Like that that's outrageous. Um, You know, uh, let's think about how we pay for maternal health. Let's think about how do we want this process to work for us as women. Um, And let's create that list of demands, right? And let's just start talking about it. There's so much power in just talking about it, um, that there are people out there who will listen and who will make that change happen. And maybe you're a person who can also help make change happen, which is amazing. Um, But, you know, it's the the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Is that how that goes, right? Like you need to start mm-hmm. talking about these things and asking for more. Women are the number one users of healthcare in this country. I mean, no matter how healthy you are as a woman, like you will see a doctor usually and you will go to the hospital at some point to have a baby usually. Um, and we should be exercising our voice as the number one user of healthcare to say like we deserve better from the system.
1: I think that's so important to demand more. Our understanding has really been elevated uh, through some of our guests over the last year about that disparity or even how research is, you know, done on basically men that were of smaller stature, and that's how Mm -hmm. women's health care or their cardiac health may be dictated. And so I think the majority of those women using maternal health, I think, is a great example. and. I, you give a beautiful example of how fortunate you were to have something like that happen where they were attuned to that and had a protocol. I had a, a similar issue, but it was not an embolism. It was a hemorrhage, and mm-hmm. it didn't result in ICU and all the blood transfusions, certainly not as severe. Um, but when I came to, and my husband's standing there with her son, the doctor goes, wow, we didn't expect that.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought to myself, um, isn't anything possible, Right. How do you not expect it? How is it we're in a level one trauma center in a major metropolitan area, but no one expects these things, right? And it just seemed so nonsensical at the time. So I'm glad you used it as kind of a springboard to move forward to decide how you would pivot or create a shift where you could facilitate change, especially sharing the stories of others. That's awesome.
2: Yeah, good. I and, mean, just the fact that both of us have had postpartum hemorrhages, like, statistically, that should not be the case. Like, that's like, we should not run into people mm-hmm. all the time who had serious maternal health complications. Like, if we can, you know, think about the things that we're able to do in medicine today that have made medicine so amazing, all of the chemotherapy and immunotherapy and all this, and like, we can't make other humans safely. Like, that's so fundamental. Like, we 100% should be able to do
3: that. That should not be that hard. Agreed, agreed. And yeah. I'm thinking what's coming up for me is that you're doing your part, that you're actually making a point and leading by example. And it's really great to see that, uh, well, to know that what the work that you're doing is inspiring others to feel safe to do the same or to get out of the sidelines and get into the arena because there is really something about hearing each other's stories, learning from one another and experiences and just making sure like. Hey, it's okay. It's okay for me to share. Maybe it's a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. So I really applaud you just for actually, you know, having the idea and following through with it, even when you don't actually know what the outcome is going to be. Because I think that's something that really stops a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. And they think, like, well, I, it's not going to be perfect. Well, is it good enough? And can you improve along the way? Can you can think of it as an iterative process? And, you know, maybe we can all get better incrementally together so
2: yeah that's thanks for your effort oh I mean that you summed it up really well healthcare is so big that no one person can fix all of it like that's just not possible what we need is every person to just try to fix a tiny piece of it right like do something Write a letter, you know, even just writing a thank you note. I mean, part of how I got started on this whole project is um, when I had just gotten home from the hospital, I wrote an email to the blood bank to say, Thank you. Like, thank you for all this blood and thank you for what you've done. And can you help me say thank you to the people who donated blood to me? And that kicked off a year long process where.